Invest in your home. Dave Ramsey here for Low Country Contractors. Now's a great time to enhance your home with that new dream kitchen, bath, or addition. I trust Low Country Contractors. They've been voted Best Home Improvement and Remodeling Contractor by Mount Pleasant Magazine, voted Top Remodeler in South Carolina by Remodeling Magazine, and they have a 98% customer satisfaction rating from Guild Quality. Folks, this is a no-brainer. Visit LowCountryContractors.com. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. This is David Marler, UFO researcher, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. This is part two of my interview with Tim McMillan. We get straight into your listener questions kicking off with talking about that black triangle photograph and I love this part of the conversation so please let me know what you think about what Tim says also thanks to everyone very quickly who did leave a review for the podcast especially if you're on Apple it makes a massive difference so if you can take two minutes jump on Apple and leave a five star review and if you can a comment as well folks and just to also announce the next guest coming up on the podcast, if you want to start emailing over your questions to ufouapam at gmail.com, is Dr. Andrew Gallimore. Andrew Gallimore, this is a guest I'm really excited to speak to because we've not really had this conversation at length on the podcast before. He has a huge interest and background in pharmacology. He is a chemist, a computational neurobiologist, and a massive interest in psychedelic drugs, especially DMT, author of the book Alien Information Theory. So Andrew will be coming on the podcast to talk about those gateway drugs and, and all that that may entail. So really good timing for that, given the way some of this conversation is starting to go as well. Dan will be joining me on that podcast too. So folks, without further ado, here is my second part with Tim McMillan. Tim, I want to get to listener questions just for the time we've got left because there was a lot of them came through and cool. a lot of the follow-ups I want to do with you, we'll try and get you on. Uh, you're a busy man after the task force report comes out to digest that a little bit if we can. If we can. Sure. Um, so Tim, first up we had Bubs and he asks, does Tim believe that a clear photo of a craft such as a black triangle or disc-like sports model or tic-tac once shown globally changes the course of human understanding of UAP reality? Do I believe a clear photo of it? I, I think it depends on the provenance. And, and so if we're talking about a really high fidelity photograph that was captured by a U.S. military sensor system and, um, you know, let's say the Tic Tac. And so you've got a really crystal clear close up photograph of this. You have a great chain of custody. Uh, I think it it does, <laughs> if nothing other than now, we can really, really, really stop talking about balloons and birds. Um, and, and you really only need one of those. And, and, and that's what I've stressed is that uh, it's very easy for people to get lumped into this all or nothing attitude. And so, you know, the, the, the 2019 events, the, the, two, the 
2015 Roosevelt events or the 2004 Nimitz. They're all UFOs. Um, maybe they are, maybe one is and two aren't, or maybe two are, one isn't. And so that's important. But if you've got one that is, that's all you need. <laughs> if you've got one, I don't care in the last 80 years, you've got one that that's truly now, like we're not going to argue anymore. Like this is a photograph. This is real. Here's the provenance. Here's the, the chain of custody. You know, here's how it was collected. Here's how we know that this isn't some type of hoax or artifact. Yeah. Now we can say, well, how, how the heck is something pill shaped, tic tac shaped with no control surfaces? How is that? How's that sustaining flight? How is it engaging yeah, in air travel? Uh, I think it does. It, do, it does change the conversation significantly. I suppose I need to follow up with the, the black triangle aspect of that. We keep hearing now for some time of this famed black or infamous black triangle UFO coming out the water. That's a photograph you've obviously mentioned in the past. Is it one that, you know, I'm just going to ask you, have you seen it? You asked that you talked about yes or no's earlier. And uh, what do you think the likelihood of that coming out is? Um, I, I now believe that it's very, very unlikely that that will come out just based on kind of the responses after we published that article. Uh, I am very confident that that photograph exists. I'm very confident that a number of, of people in the intelligence community saw it. Um, I have, uh, you know, I'm confident in what they've described is, is what they saw. Uh, and that evidently is a little more compartmentalized than I thought. You know, I thought this may have been distributed along with some of the stuff that, that Jeremy Corbell has, has reported on and produced, but I, I believe that not to be the case anymore. Um, and so I will say that the, the, the photograph was compelling enough that the people who had seen it were saying, what the heck's going on here? Um, it, and enough that I felt very confident in, in, in that this existed just based on kind of the dearth of people, or excuse me, the, the just swath of people who independently had, had confirmed it for me. Um, now, have I seen it and would it change? You know, have I seen it? No. Uh, it was only described to me, like I said, again, but by multiple different independent people, um, many of which I knew not from the UFO community or, or even the UFO topic. Not are, you, are you able to share that description? It, it was what we described. It was, you know, I was told by different people, it was a high fidelity. So clear photograph of a, it was not coming out of the water in the photograph that I was described. Uh, I think that that's kind of been misconstrued. So we're not talking about a surface vessel image, but this was an airborne image um, that I think the, the way that it was included in a report led some people to believe that it was, you know, taken during the same time as the cockpit photos. However, I, I since have found other information or have been told other things that, that have led me to believe that is not the case. And it may have been taken by an actual sensor system from an airborne aircraft. Um, so it is a U.S. government photo. Uh, and it, But it was airborne in the air and not uh, it was not the photograph that was said it was included was not coming out of the water. Uh, however, the accompanying information was said that this object emerged out of the water. Um, and I believe it was initially even picked up, uh, by, you know, anti-submarine warfare aircraft, uh, that type of thing. So it was underwater initially to begin with, 
and then it emerged. And that's how the, the whole emerging out of water came out. But it was uh, exactly what we described, an, an equilateral triangle with three white lights in each corner. Um, nothing in the middle, because that's what people have asked. I guess that uh, in a lot of these triangle cases, these three lights in, in the corners is very common. But then there may be some other type of light in the center. Uh, no one described that. But uh, and, and blunted edges, so not pointy edges, but rounded edges um, heading, you know, as if it was going straight up at probably, uh, I think it was somebody described 40,000, 45,000 feet if memory serves me correctly. So heading upwards um, as if, like I said, it was, be, it was picked up initially underwater, possibly by underwater reconnaissance vehicles or airborne anti-submarine vehicles, and then suddenly emerged. I think um, Bob McGuire <clears throat> equally has kind of shared that he was uh, told a similar kind of story from, from somebody that uh, from the intelligence community. And, and so that's, you know, I wish, I wish I had more. I wish I had it to share with everybody. You know, we, we've never played games with anybody. And so if I had it and could release it, I certainly would. Maybe that's why I don't have it. <laughs> well, I think as well that like the first I've heard that it's come from potentially a sensors system on board would that would make sense that it's not been released because it's not from the the mobile phone of a pilot, you know, as as we've heard these things, and it's easier to get that out because it's not necessarily classified as such, and it's not an operational system on board a, a craft. So I w- I would get what that potentially why that would be as as disappointing as that not coming out might be, but we'll see. So thanks for that answer. Uh, the next one, my German is not good, but this was from Meister E of the Duster Plaustichten podcast, which I believe translates as Dark Chat podcast. Um, they asked, do you know exactly who did the forensic analysis of video or photographic materials in ATIP or the UAP task force? Did they use special Department of Defense uh, image, image analysis or was it done internally by ATIP or the task force personnel themselves? Um, I honestly don't know. <clears throat> and so I, you know, and I've not been shared any information in terms of what types of analysis was done, what determinations. So, so I don't, I don't know what was or wasn't done. And I think it's important. It goes back to this triangle photo when, 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 you know, it goes back to, like you said, that, that initially even I was under the impression that this may have been captured by a cell phone. Uh, is it's important for people to realize that, it, that it, in A, making sure that the information is accurate. One of the things that it, I try to make sure is that I am talking to people who aren't necessarily UFO people. And what I mean by that is that these are uh, intel people or sources that work in different components, but they're not Lou Elizondo. They're not Chris Mellon. So they're not people. And there's nothing against them, but I already know what they believe. I already know what they think about UFOs, but it's I want to hear it from somebody else. And it, it's important to, to realize that. Uh, you know, the average person in the intelligence community is not James Bond. <laughs> this is their, their, God bless them, nerds at desk. And so, uh, you know, they're parrying through these reports or them seeing these reports is very similar to what I've said is if you imagine your, your family member who works as a stockbroker or a financial analyst who gets this UFO report, um, you, you know, they're not from the UFO community. So details that they would find interesting wouldn't be all the nitty gritty that you would want. And, and, at sometimes these these overall broad intelligence reports don't get into all the nitty gritty that's that's in a component office um and so that you know they can be prone to uh, misinterpretations based on kind of the recollection of the person that's reading it and their perception of when they read it 
uh, and down to the fact that of being extremely cautious or guarded or, you know, somewhat vague in uh, because this information is not supposed to be shared publicly. And and so when it comes to the analysis, that last question, uh, I, I, I don't have an answer. I don't know. I don't know who's done it. That's okay. fair. Other than I know that there has been some analysis. Uh, there are some a- analysts with the, the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Agency, uh, that have been involved at certain points. Whether that is consistently or not, I don't know. Thanks, Tim. Next question is Dave Lorimer. Uh, My question for Tim is, given the US uh, Air Force has been fairly tight-lipped regarding recent events, do you feel with the subsequent Inspector General involvement that this may open up the door for some evaluation of data held on systems like the space-based infrared systems and ground-based electro-optical deep space surveillance systems operated by the Air Force and as highlighted by Chris Mellon? Yes, I do. And I have written about this and people who've read my anything I've written, I have said that I believe the inspector general's involvement will, will could ultimately be much more significant than the UAP report or anything, because in speaking to their office, uh, you know, their their involvement right now is this overview of how the DOD is handling it. And so this evaluation, they will be able to I mean, they're going to say you know, are you even engaging in an effort that is well enough funded or has enough cogs in the wheel here that you can give a determination one way or another? And so, uh, yes, I think that that will be because that's that's going to be one of the things that they're going to say, you know, in, in your handling of this, how much involvement do you have from these different agencies and what are they providing? And if there's a gap there, they're going to say, well, that's there's a problem here. <laughs> you know, you can't conclusively determine something if there's a gap here. Um, Craig asks, given the potential revelations of Jacques Vallée and Paola Harris's new book, uh, Trinity, that the Atomic Energy Commission recovered a craft, do you think journalists should dig into the history or historic rumours of the AEC and Department of Energy? And you mentioned that on your first appearance on the podcast about the DOE. Does the DOE have a separate system for sightings and events at nuclear power facilities? Yeah, no, I do. And and that's a tough ticket, though. And that's a great question about Craig. And I have always said that, uh, you know, the DOE is is the most secretive of all the branches. And it's the, the least kind of discussed because it's it's not a military branch inherently, even though they have DOD, DOE personnel who are involved in all of the nuclear weapons that we have. Uh, they're not inherently a, a military branch, but they do touch into so many different things and that because they deal with, uh, you know, the most destructive weapons the world's ever seen, they're uber, uber top secret. They're the only ones that have their own classification system. And, and like I believe Chris Mellon has said now publicly, but, but he told me in a conversation that even as undersecretary of intelligence, there were aspects of DOE that he was not privy to. You know, he wasn't read into. It's not part of your job, sir. You don't have access. So, uh, you know, I do think that that's an area that, that needs to be explored more. Exploring it is being able to explore it is another question, just because as with all of this stuff, uh, it doesn't have to be the UFO side of it that is so classified. It can be all the other things that the traditionally the, the organizations operate um, that are just classified. And so it's hard. You know, that's one that uh, it's much more difficult to to try to get anybody former or active to talk to you out of the DOE. But I do think that there's, uh, I certainly think that the DOE 
is probably more involved than, than people have ever realized. And for no other reason, like I said, one of the, the kind of fundamental questions uh, in terms of performance of the UFOs that people report, whether it's acceleration or just extended periods of time that's in the air, I mean, you, you have to be able to answer the basic question, what is the energy source being used? What is the propulsion source? And that that's a DOE question. Cool. So next up, Barry, he wants to know, and we touched on this earlier, I'm really interested in your thoughts on this because this is this is quite a big deal and I don't think enough's been made of it quite yet. Um, he wants to know about you know, the NASA investigation that has been announced by Bill Nelson. Will this reveal or confirm some of the phenomena as arriving from deep space? I don't know. I'm intrigued by that. I, I had heard, uh, I had asked people who were working with the task force um, or you know, familiar with the current program about NASA. And, and they had told me you know, over a year ago that, that they had a good relationship with NASA and that NASA was working with them. Uh, I spoke with NASA um, about a year ago as well. And, and uh, they were surprisingly very willing to talk to me about it. And, and uh, you know, they said that they were all on board with, you know, if the task force, anybody else asked them that they were willing to look at it. Um, and they stressed to me, that uh, it would be uh, under a scientific endeavor and not a military endeavor, and therefore any data would be made public. And they even pointed to me to some uh, some public open source databases that they said, look, we, we don't uh, – the, these databases aren't set to inherently track uh, – unidentified aerial phenomena. However, we do have all these different atmospheric components and different things that are produce open source data. And so, uh, you know, if you, if someone with the wherewithal could, could peruse through that and possibly be able to pick out anomalous things that have been picked up in existing NASA sensors that aren't currently being trained on, you know, UAP. Uh, I think that it's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, it's definitely encouraging to hear Bill Nelson talk about that. Uh, you know, the idea of how they've presented it to me that this would be under from NASA would be a more scientific based endeavor is encouraging. Um, I hope that that's true. <laughs> you know, behind that, there is very much a uh, the, the NASA works hand in hand quite frequently with the DOD and the Department of Energy, particularly in uh, de the development of uh, you know, stealth technologies or propulsion technologies, because there's a lot of synergy there. You fly somebody to space, you can fly them in a space or a spy craft too. So uh, they do kind of cross-pollinate and then things get very classified. Um, I was very fortunate in my police career for a couple of years to uh, – to work with the Kennedy Space Center in, in Florida and work with NASA's law enforcement division there. And I used to chuckle because NASA um, was actually, you know, there on site. They, they were the most uh, closely guarded uh, facility that I have ever seen, which includes you know, growing up around military bases like Fort Stewart or you know, going to Fort Jackson where the Fifth Special Forces group is, you know, NASA was the only one that, um, you know, the, the guards actually stood at the gate with MP5 machine guns. And uh, you, even as a law enforcement officer, I had to get signed in outside there, there and get badged in with credentials and everything. Um, unlike, a, you know, a lot of military bases, um, especially 
um, pre 9-11, you know, you, you could sign on and drive around a military base. Uh, that is not the case with NASA. You, even if you take a tour of NASA, you've got to get on the visitor center outside the gate, get on the bus, they drive you around, you don't leave. Um, so there is some some uber kind of secretive parts. Or they, they're very controlled, let me put it that way, with their stuff. But uh, I think it makes perfect sense for me. And I, and I have said this to NASA administrators that I've interviewed on other topics is it's nonsensical for you guys not to get in on this. If for no other reason, the NASA is highly dependent on public funding and and especially funding for stuff like, uh, you know, the Mars Rover, which is really cool. And they do a great job with PR. But the average person's like, you know, that's not going to help me in my day to day life. You know, I, I need to pay my bills. I don't. I don't give a crap what, what's going on, on Mars. And so they're dependent on trying to have people inspired about space and, and exploration under the understanding that they may never get to explore space in their lifetime. So it makes perfect sense for the for for us to see them do that. Uh, I will be interested to see it'd be, it'd be kind of cool if NASA took the, the front in, in maybe the more public facing uh, investigation of this, because they do offer a different component than the intelligence community or the DOD because the DOD and the IC are, are focused on national security defense. I mean, that's where their mind is, where NASA is and does employ, you know, 99% of their employees are scientific minded. So they're going to be thinking science and, and science has to be done in an open source atmosphere. So, yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I think it's encouraging. I think that it is a testament to what we were talking about earlier is the kind of destigmatization and the talking about it uh, to see someone like Bill Nelson say, hey, yeah, yeah, well, let's let's take a look at it. I, I think um, I think that's good. I think it's only it only makes sense. Uh, you know, if you go through uh, just countless reports for over decades, it's remarkable how many just end in. I don't know. Or is it, it's an unidentified aircraft. What do that do? Who the hell is it? What is, you know, you can't end there. <laughs> so. Uh, hopefully it would be interesting. It'll be very, very interesting. They, they definitely have a lot of technology and um, they do engage in not just, I mean, they have a huge earth sciences division. So it's important to recognize that they have every, <clears throat> every reason to investigate the atmosphere or what's going on in the atmosphere. So, yeah, I think that uh, if it was not just kind of a talking point made in a in a speech, uh, and it is more legitimate, uh, it can be exciting. It could definitely be an exciting thing to see it. It could be our kind of ticket to seeing a more scientific approach. The scientific aspect of it, I thought, was really encouraging and interesting, and especially from someone like Bill Nelson, who, within that two-and-a-half-minute comment, confirmed he had been read into reports on this subject in his previous role in the last couple of years as well. So he's coming from a place of he's had some briefings on things that have, are going on or have gone on and how they're being studied or, or, or lack of study, which was good. But something that appears online quite often, Tim, are videos of the space station and the feed cuts out on a regular basis now for all kinds of technical reasons, no doubt. But do you ever see any of these videos? And oftentimes the feeds can seem to cut out when something else comes into view. And do you think there's anything to any of that? that <laughs> if, if this is a phenomenon that potentially has some kind of orbit, orbital, you know, 
aspect to it they're appearing there they manifest there they come in from whatever it might be they can go into space then it makes sense that if you have a space station up there they would have some sort of interest in it or be filmed at times by it do you put any weight behind some of those videos potentially well i I think in the balance of probabilities i think that that's uh probably very much the case that there are times that that things appear in the feed and the feeds cut um However, I think that those are done under kind of the the auspice that it's important to realize there's a lot of spy satellites up there, both ours and other countries. And so I think that uh, initially any of those feed cuts, if indeed they're intentional, um, they're probably not done uh, in, with under the intentions of cutting out conclusive UFO evidence and rather it's, oh, crap, we just, you know, what is this? Hey, Stop. If it is a foreign satellite based system, we need to hand this off to the intelligence community and we need to try to make a concerted effort to not let somebody else know that we filmed their stuff um, while we're trying to figure it out. If it is ours, you know, we, we need to make a concerted effort to not let our adversaries know what we've got up there. So I think that that uh, that's kind of the nuance of what's going on up there. Uh, it's also. Again, you know, it's kind of like I said, it's that that idea that, well, the space station's up there just revolving around the Earth. Uh, you know, what is it, every 90 minutes or something? It's mu- moving super fast. Clearly, if there's UFOs zipping in and out, we would see them. But, uh, you know, what's remarkable is the fact that where we're looking in the space station, we don't see more satellites. <laughs> and there's a ton up there. And so, uh, you know, it's not easy to see this kind of stuff. And, and I think that that's, you know, that's one of the things that's very lost on a lot of the, some of the science commentators or even the debunkers or critics is this idea, well, everybody's got a cell phone nowadays. Why don't we have, where's the crystal clear videos and evidence? Um, and when you talk to, to some of the people who I would consider the, the, the most credible witnesses, so, you know, just recently I had a conversation with, with Ryan Graves and you know, I haven't speak, spoken with Alex Dietrich before, previously, before she came out um, and some of the other pilots and everything, when they're talking about these objects, oftentimes they're talking about things that are six feet to 10 feet in length. You know, in some cases, I think Fravor uh, said it was, you know, the Tic Tac was 40 feet in length, but, but six feet in length. When you put that in perspective to something that's traveling through the air or the upper atmosphere, that is so tiny. And this idea that, well, where's the great videos? Um, You know, I would challenge anybody to go out there, especially at nighttime, and try to film a a commercial airplane that you know is a commercial airplane, a hundred foot, 200 foot, 747 that's flying at 35,000 feet at nighttime. Film that with your iPhone and tell me what you get. You're, you're, Tim, I'll, I'll I'll give you a better one that I've been using for the last year, which I thought was just perfect. Was the the Goodyear blimp over the New York Jets game in New Jersey, where people stopped on the motorway in good light with all their fancy iPhones, Samsungs, Huawei's, and loads of people filmed what they thought was a UFO hovering in the sky, rotating, and it was the Goodyear blimp um circulating with the led screens going and just at the angle it was at it does look a bit strange but you soon realize what it is so there's a great example of it was 2020 loads of people with their phones standing still good lighting and you couldn't get a good image of the goodyear blimp from a reasonable distance on your phone yeah yeah and think about how big the yeah think about how big the goodyear blimp is are anybody who's 
ever look through telescopes. You know, I don't do it nearly as much as I, I wish I could anymore. But, you know, I enjoy looking at the telescope and just looking out in the cosmos and, and you know, any length of time, you spend 30 minutes, you're going to have a satellite pass through at some point. But yeah, try to track that as it passes through your viewfinder. And, and even then you just see a, a point of light. And so yeah, uh, this idea that, that uh, you know, a six foot or eight foot object at 30, 40,000 feet, it, it's, it's damn near invisible to the naked eye. <laughs> so, you know, capturing on photos and all those types of things. So I think that there, there is a fallacy there in saying, well, we've got all of this fancy. No, you know, no, we don't. E- even down to our military technology is not, you know, that's one of the things we talked about with Ryan Graves is, is these objects that they were seeing were, were small enough that they, they were large enough that they had a cross section. So they were picking up on radar and larger than a bird or other things that are set to discriminate out of. But they're still small enough that when you're flying 300, 400, 700 miles per hour, it's very difficult, especially there's some really, you know, kind of bizarre cases where people talk about objects that are smaller than that, a couple of feet that just fly past. You're like, oh, shit, what was that? Um, That's very difficult to film or even spin around and try to capture. So, uh, you know, that same thing is only amplified when you're talking about the ISS that's revolving around up there in space. So the next one is a question from Brendan, and he talks about, have you heard um, Sam Harris's comments from the Ricky Gervais podcast, I believe it was? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. A lot of people have been looking into this, and Sam Harris, and, and I've had to look it up myself, as a, a author, philosopher, neuroscientist, among other things, a podcast host. And he's talked about how, uh, and not a, known to be a UFO guy, that there's technology that seems to be not of human origin, and they don't think it's Chinese, North Korean, or some other part of society. There's a lot of radar data, satellite imagery at this point, and stuff that's just top secret and better that's been leaked out. And he said that someone had reached out to him, and he's been assured that he was going to be on a Zoom call with former heads of the CIA and such, that discussing this, basically. What, what were your thoughts on that comment? <clears throat> well, the you know, first thing is, is, is it doesn't matter if it's Sam Harris or it is Barack Obama or whoever. Uh, for me, the first thing, whenever I hear people say comments like him, and you, you know, especially comes up with, with Bob Bigelow, when people talk about him and, you know, his famous interview in, in 2016, I think, where he told Laura Logan with CBS News that, you know, I don't give a damn. The aliens are here. Um, my first question for them is always, um, OK, why, you know, where does that belief come from? Like wh- what, what help, wh- how did you form that opinion? Because it doesn't matter whether it's Sam Harris or, like I said, the president. Uh, you know, we, we're extremely susceptible to authority bias, where by title we hear somebody, oh, they're, they're a former intelligence agent, so they're a former director of the CIA. That must mean they're, you know, they know it all. And it's not necessarily true. And, and, and especially when they get into sharing kind of their opinions on certain things. Uh, this happened uh, last December, you may recall when the, uh, you know, very well-known, very revered, uh, Israeli, uh, space, uh, director of their space program came yeah. out talking about the Galactic Federation and everything. Yeah. It was, you know, once the, the journalist who actually interviewed him, spoke out and, and kudos again to Jeremy Corbell, cause he, he was able to talk to that journalist. Um, 
you kind of heard that, okay, well, all of those opinions that he was sharing was coming from books and like ancient alien shows he'd watched. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't sharing anything that he'd been told as part of the space program with Israel. Um, and so my first question to kind of Sam, I guess, would be, and I understand why he wouldn't be able to say probably the same as I can't in many instances is like, well, who told you that? <laughs> and, you know, how credible is that? You know, is it not just you read it in a book or uh, something like that? Um, so that would be my, my first kind of question there. The second thing, though, I think that is interesting is, is Sam Harris is part of um, kind of this, uh, you know, loose bit of collective who they're, they're not collectively together, but, you know, in society is, is grouped is called the intellectual dark web. And so you have people who Harris is one of those who they tend to be controversial because they discuss things that, uh, particularly about very, uh, emotional topics such as politics, race, that type of thing. And they discuss things that people don't normally talk about. Uh, and so they, tend to be vilified in certain instances or revered, depending on what your views are. But, uh, you know, this collective, the intellectual dark web, I will say with somebody like Sam Harris saying what he said, and, and even others from this intellectual dark web, is it's very interesting to see them talk, saying the things that they do uh, Primarily because that's what that's where they get this moniker of being the intellectual dark web is they're willing to say things or they're willing to not just follow the mainstream narrative or the mainstream go with the flow and not cause a fuss. Uh, these are the people who, you know, say a year ago when it would get you banned from Twitter and Facebook that uh, the COVID-19 virus uh, could have escaped from the Wuhan lab. You know, that was a conspiracy theory. You know, you're a nut. And now we see um, that that's very much being explored by the intelligence community and is actually, you know, a judgment that's being made. And, and people, you know, high levels in the uh, in the medical community now are kind of reversing and slowing down a little bit and going, ah, maybe so. So it's not so much this conspiracy theory, but people like Sam Harris are the types who, we're willing to say, hey, we have not ruled this out a year ago. And so they're, they're usually pretty good at sniffing out uh, what is just the mainstream go with the flow and, and what's, hey, there is evidence here that either, you know, hasn't conclusively ruled something or it points in a different direction. And so I'll be very interested to, to hear you know, if he discusses after his Zoom call. Um, it doesn't surprise me, though. I, I have... Um, I've had conversations with people who, um, who pretty well known, who are you know like Silicon Valley, you know, high level executives who um, who have had similar Zoom calls, not with the intelligence community or former people like that, but actually with with others about this topic and UFO topic. Um, who you know these are giants in the kind of tech industry and it would surprise and shock a lot of people to that they would be discussing this seriously and and you know they also said that the you know they had invited people to come and talk to them and their kind of zoom chat meetings about this topic um so yeah i'll be very interested to see more uh would be interested and i know that there's probably some people who weren't thrilled with Sam Harris simply because like I said, he's got a controversial past and he said controversial things. Um, but you know, if he's willing to say that as well, I think some of the reason that he is controversial could, 
could mean that there is, again, just more meat behind this whole topic than people realize. Awesome. Next question from Dan, that regular co-host Dan that is as well, Dan Zetterstrom. He is asking, have you heard of any attempt at communications that have been attempted by any military organizations or such like radio communication, Morse code, etc. with any of these objects? I have not heard about any types of attempted communications. I have heard uh, unverified accounts, uh, you know, from from people who were in the the defense uh, you know, community during the time that, that several years ago, there may have been some attempts. And I think even Lou Elizondo has come out and mentioned this as well. There may have been some attempts to uh, bait or lure these things into coming out, that type of thing. Uh, but again, that's, you know, other than just some people mentioning that there's not enough for me to say I have, further confirming evidence by other independent people confirming it or physical evidence that, that says that's accurate. But in terms of trying to engage in, in communication with that, um, no, I haven't heard about that. Not saying it hasn't happened. Cool. Um, next up, can you tell us, this is from Dave, can you tell us what kind of reaction, and this goes back to something you mentioned earlier, uh, your Fast Walker article in December 2020 caused within the Pentagon, and how close are any of those anonymous sources you quoted to going on the record? Um, oh, that's a good question. Uh, it, 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 uh, it, it caused a stir, <laughs> you know, inside... Um, yeah, I can I can say with absolute fact it caused a stir inside some of the um, congressional committees, <laughs> and so um, some interesting phone calls out of the blue that I got after that. Um, I will say in terms of the sources, so there's a multitude of sources, especially for that article. There's there's a lot in, in varying positions and everything. I would say the majority of them, it's it's highly unlikely that they would go on record because they weren't uh, a part of, let's say, the task force, nor any continued efforts or previous efforts to examine UAP. They just happened to be in positions that they had the requisite access to see these reports. And so, you know, they were kind of just sharing that information along those lines, but their involvement in, in the whole topic, you know, didn't go past that and hasn't gone past it. So, um, it would be unlikely to see any of them uh, anytime soon. And I think just with some of them in kind of their career fields, it's, it's probably not something that they want to be. They would prefer to be known for what their normal job has been for the last how many ever years. Um, with others that have spoken with who are more closely aligned with current efforts, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, first of all, going on record when you're still employed with government is it just essentially not going to happen. You know, it has to be approved. And, and in most cases, that's not going to be approved by the public affairs. Um, and with some of them, uh, you know, they've expressed to me and I, and I, I can understand, I understand their concerns uh, that going on the record and kind of being known with it, it's not about the stigma. It's about some of the other concerning aspects that go along with the UFO topic and, and some of the extreme enthusiasts and some of the extreme uh, ways that things can get spun into conspiracies and everything. And, and frankly, to the point of it being a safety issue for them and their family. And um, it's very difficult for me to, to say that that's not true because I, you know, going back to law enforcement, I, I very literally 
were as involved in a case where um, you know, we, we stopped the guy before he, uh, you know, as he was planning the very next day with his, his trunk loaded up with several uh, AR-15 rifles and bulletproof vests and thousands of rounds of ammo to try to reach a, a government facility to lay one man war on it because he believed that it was harvesting alien souls. Um, and so you do, you, you have people who, uh, get kind of consumed by this topic who may suffer from mental illness or different things. And then suddenly, you know, <clears throat> if you're the person who's been part of the government's UFO program, if you're not rolling out the Roswell bodies, like they maybe expect, you know, you're part of the big cover up, and, and, you know, is, is one of these people going to show up at your house, you know, with a gun? That's a concern that they express. And, you know, again, maybe it's the law enforcement side of me. I think that's a valid concern. So um, it's certainly something that because of that, and I consider it a valid concern, there's certainly some people that I have respected that and tried to make sure that I always maintain their anonymity and never even try to push them to go on record. Because, you know, it's, you know, you, you always have, if you're, if you're a journalist and you have any moral compass about you, you're always constantly mitigating, you know, this line between you know, what is, you know, what is morally best is putting information out that could be potentially harmful, the right thing to do or not. And so in this case, you know, I, I'm maybe I, maybe I'm a bad journalist in that uh, a story is not worth potentially causing harm to anybody. And, and you know, God forbid, like you said, you, you publish somebody's name or you push them to come out and then, you know, something bad happens. You live with that for the rest of your life. And so I think that uh, I understand anybody's criticism of anonymous sources because they can't vet them and this kind of stuff. Um, and if they don't want them trust or believe it, that's fine. You know, I understand that. I just, but it, it's very consistent in how any national security reporting is done. And you can look at the New York Times just and how they report anything other than UFOs. But uh, I hope so. I, I think that one day there, there's especially one individual that I hope um, I'd love to be able to write a book about it. Let me just say that there's um, there there's definitely one or two people who are inside the government now who are remarkably versed and have actually worked this, uh, have been working this problem a lot longer than people realize. And I hope, that, I hope someday to get them now them, you know, I hope it's not a, uh, was it like the day after Roswell thing where I can't publish till they die? Cause I'm trying to measure how much older they are than me. Ooh. <laughs> I don't get enough sleep. They'll probably outlift me. So, but, uh, there is. There is some very, very fascinating individuals and some individuals that I think bolster the credibility of this topic beyond even those that we know of right now. Well, that's good to hear. And speaking of Roswell, Gary had a question. Can you offer any further details or insight on what you told Stephen Greenstreet about the Roswell wreckage, that its appearance is determined by what makes sense to each person observing it? Do you know if that applies just to the wreckage or the occupants as well? Um, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, that was, it's funny how much that, that comment, um, people really enjoyed. And it's so funny because Stephen, that was <laughs> me and Stephen had that conversation that was off the record. And, but he asked me later, um, you know, months later, Hey man, 
you know, cause he had recorded, he's like, can, can I please put it out there? And I was like, yeah, sure. Fine. And the only reason I wanted it to be off the record. So that everybody understands is because, you know, it's like I said in that is I'm really just saying, this is what one person told me. One person yeah. who was, I know for a fact has been involved in this topic and has been involved in this from the government aspect for a very long time. Um, but I don't have anything beyond what they said. And I just think it's interesting. And so that's, that was the reason that it was originally off the record was because I have to be very cautious because as you've probably seen, things very quickly can turn to fact when you're just like, Hey, this is what some dude told me. But no, I mean, that was the, what I said to Stephen Griefer was exactly what they told me was that, uh, you know, the Roswell wreckage was real, uh, and that, uh, it was not a flying saucer, um, that there were occupants that, uh, were not anthrop- anthropomorphic, meaning, you know, like what we think about the grays, two arms, two legs, um, and that these uh, craft or whatever were, super, super, super advanced to the point where there was a, uh, there was a kind of nexus between the observed and the observee, um, in that it, uh, you know, is able to alter perception to kind of a- appear in different ways for different people or, or how you would see something that actually, um, and that's, that's where my, my academic background is in cognitive psychology, that aspect is not, that's the least crazy thing <laughs> I've heard in this topic. And I think that it's very important. And in fact, you know, we probably talked about this the first time I was on your show that before I ever started reporting on this, that aspect of the cognitive perception side of UFOs was my original interest in this 12 years ago. It's when I first started kind of researching it before I started writing on it or looking at the government. And uh, I think there is there is some legitimate discussion to be had on human perception and how we perceive truly anomalous stimuli in our environment. And so, you know, you know there's a lot going around us at any given time, but people don't realize it. When you look at uh, recent studies and even down to neuroscience, which has confirmed this through MRI scans, that did uh, stuff like psychedelics, like LSD, uh, you know, how those affect the, our brains is they, they throw open the thalamus, which acts like a gatekeeper, which kind of blocks out all these external stimuli that are around our environment constantly. They're there. We just don't see them. And so our perception is actually formed through neural gating, which means we narrow in these stimuli to form what we see right here in front of you. Um, it is not absorbing everything that's in our environment. So there is a number of stimuli in our environment that do not pick up off of our normal senses, sight, smell, taste that do exist. And so when you see in psychedelics, you know, no, there's not a purple elephant flying by uh, that you might see when you're on LSD, but there is a stimuli. And that purple elephant is just your brain's best attempt at making sense at what is a nonsensical stimuli because you lack the, the existing knowledge or language to describe what you're seeing. And so this question emerges in the UFO topic is the Tic Tac, a, f- a flying saucer, a whatever, a triangle, really just your brain's ability to piece together a truly anomalous stimuli and make sense of it. Um, and so that's not totally crazy. And in, in, in down to the point that if you're talking about that uh, something like UFOs could overtly influence this, it would mean that they have, you know, there's some type of mechanism where they're able to externally influence uh, how you, something's perceived. Again, not totally crazy. Our brains are just 
you know, mush and a bunch of electrical currents. If you know how to, you know, alter those electrical currents, you can do a lot of things. Case in point, LSD. You know, we do so few subtle changes into our brains. We can make us see things. And so it is interesting. And, and I, you know, there are aspects, there's a couple aspects of that that bring into that cognitive side of it that I think is a underreported or underexamined part that maybe people get too caught up in this idea that it's alien visitors coming from outer space in a flying saucer. And so it hasn't been explored, but certain consistence that you see in reports, decades of reports is that, uh, that I find very interesting is uh, people consistently report seeing, uh, you know, having sensory, total sensory deprivation in these instances. So, People will see a UFO at close proximity and they'll remember that you know, all of the ambient sounds that are around you, you know, the birds chirping, the, the crickets, everything ceases. So now you've lost. You've got auditory exclusion. You've lost this ability to, to hear anything. So you're having a perception. Something is going on with your perception. Something is going on with how you're perceiving your environment in these instances. And uh, that's very, very consistent. You hear that all the time. You know, people are like, it's like a movie. I enter the major, like, you know, everything just zoomed out. And all I could see was this thing. Uh, you know, that's very consistent. I, I, I spoke with a woman less than a year ago and, and her daughter that where they described seeing an identical triangular object, you know, less than a hundred feet over them, pass over them. And, you know, they were just coming in their house, uh, you know, pulled up in their front yard and, and this thing just, you know, zoop, <laughs> like it's just skimming along, but, but low enough. Uh, and it was identically described as, is the one in that photograph that everybody wants, you know, with the three white lights. Um, but one aspect of that sighting that, that still, I, I don't have an explanation for, um, both as an investigator or as a cognitive scientist, which is her and her daughter are standing two feet apart from each other when this happens. They both describe seeing the exact same thing. They both describe it doing the exact same thing. One describes it as being black. The other describes it as being like silver. Like I don't, <laughs> how you could have that distortion in, in the coloring that's perceived by two individuals that are right there. I don't know. Like, how does that happen? But that would suggest that there's some type of mechanism, whether it is intentional or unintentional, that um, causes some hiccups in how they're perceived. So I don't have more on any specifics to Roswell or that that I talked about with Stephen Greenstreet. But in terms of that idea of what he said, that, uh, you know, these types of objects may not be flying saucers. There may be something totally different. They may be super small <laughs> that appear larger. Um, it's not it's not crazy, <laughs> you know, if you really get into the nitty gritty of how our brains work in science. I, I can understand that. I'm colorblind and I've spent uh, a lot of my life sh with people showing me, you know, what color is this jumper? What color is this T-shirt? What color is this bit of paper? And mm -hmm. uh, we can both be looking at the same thing and I just interpret something different to you. Um, so I can get how if you go up the levels on that that could be manipulated that you view different objects the same way and even dyslexic people who can look at the same word written on a piece of paper but see the letters in a different order when they're physically not in a different order as far as we can tell so that's yeah 
Well, that's and little known fact, uh, uh, little known fact about me, Andy, uh, even though I now write for a living and enjoy writing that. Yeah, no, I, I'm actually dyslexic. And so, yeah. And uh, I, I have a type of dyslexia where we're just like you said, where it's, it's not even, uh, you know, sometimes dyslexia, you'll see words backwards and everything like that. I'll see words that aren't even there per se. Like I read extremely fast, but it's uh, a different type of reading. And so, yeah, like if you, if I was to read a book word for word, um, it's different than how I would normally read. So my brain kind of just pick, pieces together how the sentence is supposed to, to answer. And uh, you're absolutely right. And I think that I've pointed this out on Twitter a while back as well. I think if you dig into some of the cognitive science studies, people will realize that, that this influence and in, in especially I'm a huge proponent of uh, semantic cognition, which is that our language defines kind of how we perceive things. And so in order to actually perceive anything in our environment, we have to have language to describe it. Um, and one of the most compelling studies is that is the this idea that um there's pretty strong evidence that human beings could not perceive the color blue prior to about 2000 years ago because they had no language for it and you know the the supporting evidence for that is that the, the color blue does not appear in any written literature um pre 2000 years homer's odyssey the, the the water is the color of wine uh, it's not blue. And so it's not until you you get into the Egyptians and that kind of culture spreads out where you have uh, like uh, Techelet, which is this blue, uh, real dark blue color that suddenly blue um, is very common. I mean, you look outside, it's sunny outside. I see a blue sky that you're like, what? There's no blue. But, uh, you know, there's been studies to corroborate that with, with remote disconnected tribes where we're Cognitive scientists have shown that they were unable to process, differentiate the color blue between the color green. And so that's a good example of how if you're talking about a stimuli that is you have no other external responses from. So you can't touch it. You can't smell it. You, know, you can't hear it. Uh, it's only a visual stimuli. You may not be able to see it or you may in, in certain instances be able to see it. But is it what you're really seeing? And I think that that's uh, when it comes to this topic, that's an area of focus that I hope that scientists will get into and need to expand more because there are some some consistent themes there, including, uh, you know, when I was looking at it from a cognitive standpoint, uh, some of the consistent themes I, I noticed were that people often had UFO sightings when they were in a state of emotional duress, not in that exact moment, but they had gone through some type of uh, life altering event, whether it was like a divorce or a significant breakup or a death in the family, like they were in a different emotional state, or uh, you'll see a high degree and prevalence of people that have, um, you know, and this is a study that Kit Green and, and um, Gary Nolan, Dr. Gary Nolan did as well, uh, this idea that the, um, uh, the pod at Putnam, Putnam, uh, you know, region in the brain that people that had over overextensions of the the caudet tended to have more experiences. Um, but people who have uh, overextended caudet regions in their brains are also people who have ADHD, and you will see that as well. That that people oftentimes a lot of people who have had UFO sightings also have ADHD, and. Uh, Again, that kind of makes sense because ADHD is a little mis misunderstood in the public and this idea that you can't focus on something. The reason you can't focus on something is that you're actually perceiving too much in your environment. 
So rather than the book you're trying to read, you're also perceiving the fan and the TV and, you know, the birds chirping outside. And so they pick up more stimuli in their environment. And so this idea that people with ADHD could pick up these truly anomalous stimuli, like what UFOs could represent, again, not crazy. And, and I think it's a very real and testable research hypothesis that uh, part of me wishes I got back into full-time cognitive science just to start examining those types of things. Tim, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Just before I let you go, can I just say thanks to everyone who sent in questions? We didn't even get through half of them. So uh, Tim, rather be Tara, Robert, Graham, Michael, Sebastian, I will keep those for next time I've got Tim on, uh, but there was a whole load. Hopefully, some of them were answered within the body of the interview anyway. Tim, how can people follow yourself and follow your work at the debrief as well? Sure, yeah. And no, I really appreciate it. And, and to everybody who's sending questions, thank you. Um, I, you know, always feel free to try to reach out to me on Twitter. And if you have those questions, I, I will try to answer them as much as possible. Because um, I tend to be kind of busy. I'm not don't just write at the debrief. I, I'm the one who's managing the day to day and kind of running the show. And so I tend to be pretty busy, but I will try to answer those. But anybody can find me on Twitter at, at LT Tim McMillan or uh, the, the debrief.org, you know, is where all of our work's coming out. You know, new stuff, uh, Monday through Friday, we take the weekends off. Um, so feel free to go there. You know, I, I also have a personal website, which is LTTimMcMillan.com. And, but, uh, anybody, please feel free to reach out. Um, I always enjoy hearing from people. Please don't take offense. If I don't get back to somebody DMS me or emails me, it, it, uh, tends to be because I'm out of Germany. So if it's somebody in the States, I'm in a different time zone. I see it right when I wake up and then I forget about it because <laughs> I have ADHD too. Dyslexic and ADHD, worst writer in history. <laughs> well, it seems to be working for you anyway, Tim. Thanks very much for your time. Pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Andy. Pleasure speaking to you too that is all for this week's show thank you very much for listening please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform you can like retweet and subscribe that would all be very much appreciated the shows are being uploaded onto youtube as we speak more and more you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that ufo podcast to access the shows ad free as well please get in touch on twitter facebook instagram that ufo podcast of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. And I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head. And everything was weird and everything was red. I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And they think I should because that doesn't really scare me.
Invest in your home. Dave Ramsey here for Low Country Contractors. Now's a great time to enhance your home with that new dream kitchen, bath, or addition. I trust Low Country Contractors. They've been voted Best Home Improvement and Remodeling Contractor by Mount Pleasant Magazine, voted Top Remodeler in South Carolina by Remodeling Magazine, and they have a 98% customer satisfaction rating from Guild Quality. Folks, this is a no-brainer. Visit LowCountryContractors.com. You coming to bed, hon? Yep, honey, I'll be right there. Just got to turn out the light. Ow! 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 Ah! Some things never change. Like your kids always leaving tiny toys on the floor for you to step on. And Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Sweetie, I think I left the downstairs light on. Please don't make me go. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.